This is Anchored in Christ, the sermon podcast that gives you hope in the gospel as an anchor for your soul. Brought to you from Old South Presbyterian Church in Newburyport, Massachusetts. The old, old story. That's actually what Revelation is all about. It's the vision of Jesus given to John on the Isle of Patmos. It's a summary of the 65 other books of the Bible. Last week, we heard the summary of the Revelation to John, chapters 8 and 9. We're called forth to pray. In these prayers, we heard that there are trumpets that are blowing, blown by angels, which are given as warning. It's a warning system that a final, ultimate judgment is coming. Revelation is good news. It's the gospel. You may wonder, now how is it that Warnings that cause destruction are good news. It's because judgment shows that God cares. God takes seriously evil in the world and definitively moves against it. The trumpets, warnings are happening now. We are living in dramatic times. It's evident everywhere we look. Earth burned. Sea, its creatures affected. Nature disrupted. Rivers and streams polluted. Demonic forces let loose. Warnings are meant to lead to repentance. But what we learn in Revelation the end of chapter 9, is that they're not enough. Warnings and judgments don't turn people around. What's needed? Human witness. The church. The church telling the story. And that's where we are, Revelation 10 and 11. I will be reading in portions, beginning with chapter 10, verses 1 and 3. And I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud, with a rainbow over his head. His face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He held a little scroll open in his hand. Setting his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, he gave a great shout like a lion roaring. And when he shouted, the seven thunders shouted, beginning with verse 8. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven, that's Jesus, spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel, who is standing on the sea and the land. So I went to the angel, and I told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take it and eat. It will be bitter in your stomach, but sweet as honey in your mouth. 
So I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. Then they said to me, you must prophesy again about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, come, measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations. They will trample over the holy city for 42 months. I will grant my two witnesses authority to prophesy for 1,260 days wearing sackcloth. These are the two olive trees, the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Going down to verse 7 of chapter 11. When they had finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. Picking up with verse 11. But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, the witnesses. And they stood on their feet, and those who saw them were terrified. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies watched them. What concludes with chapter 11 is the Hallelujah Chorus. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our God. Let us pray. Jesus, we do ask that you would take this very strange-sounding vision and by your Holy Spirit make sense of it for us. For we are living in dramatic and desperate times, and we need a word of hope and encouragement. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. What will happen this week? A broad survey shows that 78% of American adults feel high stress over the upcoming election. In New York City and Washington, D.C., stores have boarded up their windows in anticipation of violence. Which candidate will win? And how much time will pass before the outcome is certain? And what about the pandemic? USA Today reports that in the United States, every second, one new person tests positive. That's epic-making. How long before the transmission rates go down? How long will it be before we feel like we're living a normal life again? We all want to know what's going on, what's happening next, how long it will be. Jesus' disciples want to know these same things. We heard it in Acts chapter 1, 
6 through 11. Let's look at Jesus' answer to his disciples, and then let's look at his conversation with John 65 years later in the vision that's recorded in the book of Revelation. We will find three things that Jesus commissions us to be his witnesses. We will see that Jesus has a way for the church to witness. He shows us how. And third, we receive the encouragement that we need to witness. The first, Jesus commissions us to be his witnesses. Acts 1, verse 6. The disciples say, So, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? Think about it. The disciples had been through unprecedented experiences. The Lord that they had seen for three years working miracles had just undergone a fake trial, mob rule, gory crucifixion. There was utter despair and then an unexpected resurrection. Now Jesus is with them, and they say, well, now will normalcy be restored so that we can enjoy a good life? John is among those who ask Jesus this question. What will happen next? Will right be vindicated and wrong punished? Huh? Huh? Now? What does Jesus say? Verse 7, it is not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority. It is not for you to know the times or periods. Times, that word, comes into English uh, in chronology. It's the Greek word chronos. It's how we measure the intervals of minutes and days and weeks and months. Jesus says it is not ours to know the timeline. That word periods is the Greek word kairos. It is when you say that time is marked by circumstances, by events, election time, pandemic time. Jesus says, it is not ours to know what will take place. God alone knows. God alone has the authority over these. So what are we to know? And what are we to do? Jesus tells us. Verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will receive be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Here's what we are to do. Be my witnesses, says Jesus. What is a witness? That word comes to us as language of the courtroom. In Boston last week, in court, 
Actress Lori Laughlin was sentenced to two months in prison and a large fine for her role in a national college admission scandal. Laughlin was the defendant and witnesses gave testimony regarding her part in the scandal. In the Bible, who is on trial? Who is the defendant? It's not us. Otherwise, we would be the defendants and not witnesses. Witnesses give testimony regarding the defendant. The person on trial is Jesus Christ. Jesus claims that he's brought another kingdom into this world. And it displaces and it transforms every other authority. Jesus claims to be able to mend any broken life and set people free from the power of evil and sin and death and fear. Jesus claims to be at the center of everything. Do you believe this? If so, you are called as a witness. Now, the world does not believe Jesus' claims. The world puts Jesus on trial. We are called as his witnesses. We are to tell what we know, and we're to present evidence through our lives that point to his truth. So Jesus commissions us to be witnesses. And those disciples were to go in concentric circles from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the othermost parts of the earth. But the funny thing is, they didn't really do it until they began to suffer, until persecution took place. And then they were forced to scatter, sharing the good news. Suffering and witnessing go together. In 1953, communist China expelled every Christian missionary on the mainland, leaving only a few Chinese Christians behind. Most of them were poor women in their 70s and 80s. And because the government persecuted them, these Christians went underground, meeting around kitchen tables, two or three, in a home. It was this fall that The Economist magazine reported that out of today's 1.4 billion Chinese, 60 million are evangelical Christians, and the church is growing. China's not the fastest-growing Christian nation. It may surprise you which is. It's Iran. Iran has the fastest-growing Christian population. It's explosive. It's illegal to be a Christian in Iran. Every church meets in homes. The gospel is never preached from a pulpit, but it's shared friend to friend using changed lives, and scripture as testimony. Iranian Christians 
always hear their pastors and receive the sacraments virtually because their pastors are in free countries which are streaming in to Iran. Suffering caused the first century Christians to grow because it gave them opportunity to witness. Suffering has allowed the Chinese church to grow, the Iranian church to grow. What will suffering do for the North American church? A lot depends on whether we understand how Jesus wants us to witness. Let's look now at that. How Jesus wants the church to witness. We're picking up with Revelation. 65 years later, in chapter 10, verse 8, John hears from Jesus, go take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel. The scroll we learned about from Revelation 5, it is the meaning of life. No one can explain it. No one can interpret it. No one's worthy except Jesus Christ, the Lamb. He's opened it. So we find this word scroll again. It's important to know that that word comes as scroll because that's what people wrote on. But the word is biblion. Comes into English as book. Book. Bibliography. Books. So Jesus tells John, take the book that explains me and everything in, that has happened in history. John approaches the angel and says, give me the little book. He gives that word diminutive. Give me the little booklet. And the angel gives it to him. What is happening here? John feels inadequate to bear witness to everything that Jesus is and does. It's too much. His mind is boggled. He feels like he's going to stutter, just as we do. John cannot tell everything about Jesus, but he can say something. He asks for the little book, and he gives witness with that. Do you feel like your faith, your understanding, are no match for the events that we're facing today? You're in good company. Whatever inadequacy you may feel does not mean you are exempt from being Christ's witness. Take the little book. Assimilate it. Say what you can about God, who's made known in Jesus Christ. Say it in your daily conversations with people. How does Jesus want the church to witness? Take the little book and then eat it. That means don't just say, yeah, yeah, okay, okay, I understand. No, assimilate it until it becomes your nerves, your very muscles, the way you speak, the way you act, the way you live. It is you because you've taken it into you. That is your witness. Some of you know Al. A few weeks ago, in the middle of the night, Al was violently assaulted by a neighbor. He was rushed to the hospital, he underwent surgery, and he's gone through extensive rehab. 
Al's bones are healing, but he's suffering from residual brain injury. Al shared this week with me over the phone that throughout his whole life, he's never had a place where he felt loved. He's never had a place where he felt like he belonged until he met you, the members of Old South. And Al recounted the long list of your names, people who have reached out in so many ways. He said, I met Jesus because of these people. I was never happier than the day I was baptized. And I felt the love of God, which has never gone away. People in this church have eaten God's word. It's become a part of them. And so gives the testimony of Al. And then in verse 9 of chapter 10, we hear that what John eats will be as sweet as honey, but bitter in his stomach. What does that mean? Well, for two weeks, I have had the diagnosis of celiac disease. It means that foods that are yummy to eat actually cause pain and disruption inside. But what does Jesus mean here? The sweet words that we share in witness can leave us with a pit in our stomach from bitter rejection. Think about it. There is no biblical witness in the scripture that we are acquainted with that does not suffer rejection. Not Moses, nor Elijah, John the Baptist, or Jesus himself have, have missed out on what happens when people reject what you say. I have experienced it, and I'm confident you have too. So how does the church witness? Well, take as much as you know of God, share what you have with others. It will probably result in feeling rejected. But it's not because we're speaking to people as though we were holier than thou. No, just the opposite. We see in chapter 11, beginning in verse 3, that two witnesses are wearing sackcloth. That two comes from the Old Testament requirement that to have a strong witness, you must, or a valid witness, you must have at least two to show it's true. So these two witnesses, which represent the church, wear sackcloth. Sackcloth is a sign of repentance and humility. It would be like burlap. It would be completely rough and scratchy. In the Old Testament, people wore sackcloth as a sign that they were sorry for their lives. They were sorry for how they had lived. They wore uncomfortable clothes to remind them that they were uncomfortable in their own skin. The witness that wins the world to Christ wears sackcloth. Jesus wants his church to be repentant. 
I'm sorry I have done this. I am sorry I have failed. I am sorry I've been a poor example. I'm sorry for my attitude. I am so sorry, God. Please forgive me as I have been forgiven. I forgive you as I have been forgiven. That is the witness. It is the opposite of speaking judgment coming from anger, resulting in violent words, violent actions. It's humble, repentant, approachable. The Times of London once held an essay contest asking people to answer the question, what is wrong with the world? And the great Catholic journalist and mystery writer G.K. Chesterton entered the contest. Here's how he answered. What is wrong with the world? I am. That's what we have to say. I am part of the problem. You are part of the problem. The church is part of the problem. We begin to be a witness when we wear our sackcloth and say, I want to tell you a story. I want to tell you what God has done for me. I am approachable. I am not bearing arms. I want to tell you, come. Come and live in the light. Finally, the encouragement we need to witness. We see this in chapter 11, the first two verses. John is given a rod. That's how they measured instead of a yardstick. And he's told to measure the temple and all of its beautiful, symmetrical dimensions. Now, there was no temple in Jerusalem. That was destroyed in 70 AD. So measuring the temple is a symbolic way of measuring the church. The church, because all through the New Testament, we are referred to as the temple of God. We're built into a spiritual temple. And it is declaring that the church is preserved in the midst of suffering and persecution. The church will survive. The clean lines measured represent moral and spiritual order in a time of chaos and trouble. And when we gather in worship, whether we're ever in person or we are online, we find our place, we find a refuge, and we are strengthened. The encouragement we need is present in the church. You heard in Revelation, 42 months, uh, three and a half years, all these different days. They are the same period of time. And what we see in this vision that Jesus gives is that the church and its witness and divine protection and hateful outside forces are simultaneous. It's not a succession. It happens at the same time. The witness, the divine protection, and the chaos and evil all around. So finally, the encouragement we need to witness is given to us in the gift of the Holy Spirit. God himself, in Christ, through the Spirit. This is what Jesus promised his disciples. In Revelation 11, those two witnesses, the church, 
They're given the power of Moses. They're given the power of Elijah. They show that we're in a consecutive, meaningful empowerment through history bearing witness. And when that testimony is done, evil does its worst. And those witnesses are killed. And they lie exposed for three and a half days, a symbol of a very short time that looks like that time that Jesus was in the tomb. And then they're raised. They're raised to new life, and it is eternal. It cannot be taken away. Where does it all end? The last half of chapter 11 is the hallelujah chorus. It's like what happened 10 years ago, right on this past weekend in downtown Philadelphia. It was in a Macy's store. More than 600 Philadelphia area singers walked around in the store and exactly at noon, when no one expected it, the largest pipe organ in the world began playing the opening measures to the Hallelujah Chorus from Handel's Messiah. And the choir members, sprinkled throughout the store, started singing in full voice, giving glory to the King of kings and Lord of lords. Do you believe this? If so, Jesus commissions you as his witness. He shows you how to witness. Taking what you can, sharing it in a life that is being transformed, humbly, repentantly, gently. And he gives you and me the power of the Holy Spirit. We will join in a heavenly chorus. Actually, that chorus is happening now, and it will last forever. If you believe, then speak. Let us pray. Lord, we pray that as we hear, that we would take it into us, and that word would change us. And so, Lord, we give you our belief, our fumbling faith, and we ask that you would water it and receive it so that it may go deep and bear fruit in the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Old South Presbyterian Church in Newburyport, Massachusetts. If you'd like more information about our historic church, or you'd like to find out more about the gospel of Jesus, please visit our website at oldsouthnbpt.org. The peace of Christ be with you.